You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. Coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 252 of the Gear and Ashley Mullet Show. This is Monday, November 15th, 2021. And I've got a couple of things for you this morning. One of them being an excellent and very thought-provoking article in tabletalkmagazine.com. Gene Edward Veith published this one here earlier this month, and the title of the article is Modern Fascism Revisited. Gene Edward Veith writes, in 1993, I published a book titled Modern Fascism, Liquidating the Judeo-Christian Worldview. In it, I showed that the various fascist movements in Europe of the 1930s and 1940s were facets of the modernist movement, particularly the branch of that movement that morphed into postmodernism. I also showed that the intellectual establishment of the 1990s, as represented in the academia of the time, was still holding to the ideas of the intellectual establishment of the 1930s that gave us Adolf Hitler, the Holocaust, and World War II, as if those catastrophes had never happened. But as I wrote, quote, my concern is not so much with the current intellectual scene as it is with what might come next. And by the way, short pause on reading this. That is what I have been saying for years. It is not so much the current intellectual scene as it is what might come next that we should be very, very concerned about. Continuing on, what will the post-contemporary movement look like once the postmodernists have successfully discredited objectivity, freedom, and morality? What sort of society will be erected on the rubble once the Western tradition is deconstructed? End quote. What might come next? Well, Table Talk has asked me to revisit my book to see how it stands up nearly three decades later. Reading it again after all these years was an unsettling experience. Much of what I predicted and warned against has come true, and even when I was wrong, I was wrong in underestimating the magnitude of the fascist revival. Now, I'm not going to read this entire article to you, just so you guys know, but I will put a link in the episode description. I would encourage you to go and check it out yourself. But I do want to skip down to the last section. And there are two quotes, two additional quotes I want to share with you before we move on to whet your appetite and also to set the stage for what I want to discuss more fully in this episode. Weith writes, quote, those who dissented with the regime were not seen as people who disagreed intellectually or philosophically, but as people with hostile wills. Now, I'll add a little bit of context here. What Weith is talking about is a dissection of Nazism, German Nazism. Those who dissented were not seen as people who were disagreeing intellectually or philosophically, but as people with hostile wills. Continuing on, in rejecting the common will, they were guilty of not belonging. This is perhaps why the Nazi apparatus was so thorough in its interrogations. What was wanted was not so much conformity, but assent. Those who disagreed 
were exhibiting a contrary will. They were not skeptics, but enemies. A very important observation there. A very important observation. His last paragraph, he describes as his penultimate paragraph from his 1993 book. And we'll read this one as well. Quote, The 20th century persists in its obsession with primitive emotions, irrational subjectivity, moral revolt, anti-transcendence, and the triumph of the will. But civilization is fragile. Deep in the human heart is what St. Paul called the mystery of iniquity, which is barely held in check by the objective restraints of law, reason, and conscience. To eliminate those restraints is to unleash hell on earth. Close quote. Dr. Jean Edward Weith is provost and professor of literature emeritus at Patrick Henry College in Purcellville, Virginia. He is author of several books, including God at Work and Reading Between the Lines. Check that article out. It is worth reading in its entirety. You won't regret it, I promise. But I want to play off of what Weith is writing here, what he's saying here. And I want to build on what it is that he is drawing attention to, in part by directing your attention to the way that online culture works, the way that our mass media increasingly nakedly, increasingly clumsily works, the way our relationships with one another in real life all too often increasingly work. And this latest adaptation of Frank Herbert's epic science fiction novel, Dune. I just had the opportunity over the weekend to take five of my six born sons over to my brother Bryce's house in Milliken. My sister-in-law, Alyssa, and her mother, they got away, went had a, kind of a ladies' night, just the two of them. And my dad joined us, and of course my nephew, Caden, was there. And so it's just us mullet men. Us, the, the mullet men of Colorado got together and assembled, minus John Lazarus, who was a little bit young to be enjoying the uh, movie Dune just yet at three years old. I think he might be a little bit young. And I'll tell you what, from what I recall, and it's been a while, it's been half my life ago that I read the book in high school. But from what I recall of the feeling of reading Frank Herbert's Dune, the gravitas the grittiness, the raw humanity of the novel. This latest film adaptation is very faithful to the book. Very, very faithful. They did a great job of capturing the aesthetic and the tension and space. You know, that's something that far too few movies allow for. And I hate this in the high-paced, action-packed, special effects um, on steroids 
experience that too many movies have become. You know, special effects are great. I love special effects, but if that's all you got, then this is an amusement park ride. This isn't a story. I want a story. Tell us a story and have it be a meaningful story that to what Dr. Weiss is talking about in Table Talk gets at a transcendent truth about human nature, about reality, about life, about good and evil. Give us something that is going to feed the soul or instruct our sensibilities, which is going to make us wiser, truly, and not corrupt us, hopefully. And insofar as those are my goals for approaching media, and even vapid media, I want to analyze it like some kind of an anthropologist, an embedded in, an embedded and amateur anthropologist, uh, perhaps, but anthropologist nonetheless, studying American society and pop culture and where are we headed and what are we doing. Dune gives the right amount of pacing. Some people said it was too fast-paced. They couldn't follow it. There's too much cut out of the books. Well, the first book, Dune, just Dune, uh, is a big one. It's a big, big book, and it's very complex and complicated. And yet, in another sense, it's not complicated, actually. It's just not our typical fare. And so we don't digest it readily, a lot of us. But for those of us who make a study of human nature, Dune is so refreshing because it tackles a lot of these issues head on. It goes to the heart of what is power based on? What is the nature of power and government and philosophy and religion? And how do all these things relate together? And in the story of Dune, in Frank Herbert's universe, you have principally two competing noble houses. You have on the one hand, House Atreides, which is building its brand on integrity, on respect, on decency, and they're building loyalty in the hearts of not only their own people, their own soldiers, but those other noble houses which rule the known universe. Humanity in the story of Dune is thousands and thousands of years into the future and we have colonized other planets and we've spread out over the galaxy and the House Atreides brand is gaining traction. But that's because in part the ruling power at the very, very top, the emperor's house, his family, his brand is based on terror and intimidation and brute force and might makes right. And you're going to do what I say or else I'm going to unleash my cold, ruthless killers on you. They will descend on your planet and they will murder you and your family and your people without mercy, without remorse. So stay in line. Do what I say or my 
highly competent killers who have been given their entire existence just to kill, just to be good at killing. My highly trained and amoral and fanatical killers are going to come after you and they will end you. And that's that. You can bet on it. You can take that to the bank. What's so interesting is that the emperor feels threatened by House Atreides. Not because House Atreides is stronger than he is yet, but they're getting there and he can see the trajectory and he can see that if he doesn't do something to squash House Atreides, he will lose power. He will not be emperor for long. And already, since everybody else can see that coming, already he's threatened because what if these other houses see that that's the trajectory and they want to just get this over with? Hey, let's cut to the punchline. Let's all join behind Duke Leto Atreides in putting an end to the reign of terror by this emperor. So the emperor not to give too, too much away because you should really read the book and you should really watch the movie and you can turn off this podcast and go read the book, go watch the movie and then come back and listen to the rest of it if you want to. It'll keep. It's one of the joys of being able to pause and resume. But for those of you who are familiar somewhat or you're not going to read it and watch it unless I explain it to you first and then that will whet your appetite, I'm going to continue. You are warned. The emperor devises a plan to get Atreides out of the way. What he does is he sends an envoy to Caladan. Caladan is the fiefdom, if you will. It's a planet, but you know, thousands of years in the future, we're back to feudalism. It's just a galactic feudalism. Caladan is where House Atreides rules and reigns. So this imperial envoy comes and announces that the honor of overseeing spice production on the planet Arrakis has been given to House Atreides. It has been the domain of House Harkonnen for a long time, for hundreds of years. They've been fabulously wealthy, just ridiculously enriched by overseeing the spice trade because the whole universe, the whole known human civilization across the galaxy depends on spice. Spice is this catch-all resource that people can't do without, kind of like oil in our day. People want to do without it, but they can't really. And so you're just stuck. And so whoever controls the oil in our day can disproportionately control the world and politics and shape and mold how people vote and what they're able to do and who's powerful and who isn't. Yes, you might have a great army, but if you can't fuel your machines to use that army with all of its mechanized portions, then you're kind of stuck. You're kind of in a bad way. Yes, you've got a great economy, but if you can't fuel that economy, well, then you're stuck. You're kind of in a bad way. Well, so also in the universe of Dune, Spice is this weird psycho-reactive resource 
that helps people to be essentially evolved in some odd way, depending on how you use it, for what purposes, you can basically cause people to evolve abilities which make the futuristic world or, or universe of Dune function. So space travel is dependent on who has the spice. And a lot of other things are dependent on who has the spice. And all of the noble houses, the wealthiest, most powerful people in the universe, once they have taken spice, they're able to live longer. It enhances their mental abilities, gives them unnaturally long life. But also once they are on it, they're on it and they're addicted. And if they stop taking spice, then they're going to die. And so House Harkonnen, they have the tap. They have control over it for hundreds of years. They become fabulously wealthy. And House Harkonnen is the bitter rival of House Atreides. They are the opposite of House Atreides in so many ways, where House Atreides is built on honor and dignity and building trust through saying what you mean and meaning what you say and doing the right thing and being a, a decent, honorable person. House Harkonnen is built on deception, intimidation, terror. You will do what we say or else we will send assassins in the night or else we will crush you or else we will destroy you. Don't get in our way or we will destroy you brutally without mercy. And what ends up happening, again, spoiler alert, what ends up happening is that the emperor makes an arrangement with House Harkonnen. They're going to pull back from the planet Arrakis, also known as Dune. That's where the name of the book comes from, the name of the series comes from. Arrakis is nicknamed Dune because it's a desert planet. But House Harkonnen is going to pull out of Arrakis. House Atreides is going to go in. But House Atreides is set up to fail. It looks like an honor on the front end, but in actuality, it's a trap. And once House Atreides is there, they realize they've been left with only the worst equipment. Things are not in good condition. They can't operate. It's not sustainable. While they're distracted trying to figure out, okay, how can we make this work? We're trying to get a handle on the situation. House Arconan, with a whole lot of Imperial troops, these vicious Sardaukar who are like the most feared warriors in the galaxy, they attack. And it ends up being a total disaster for House Atreides. They're totally cleaned out which was the idea. That was the emperor's plan. That was how he was going to get rid of House Atreides. It was essentially a Trojan horse, right? It looks like a gift. It looks like an honor. But in actuality, it's a trap. House Harkonnen is awful, evil, no good, corrupt, wicked, monstrous. But the emperor understands House Harkonnen. He understands what it is that he's dealing with, with House Harkonnen. And he can actually make a deal. 
because he's still stronger than House Harkonnen. His troops are needed for the invasion, which is another way of saying his troops are stronger than Harkonnen troops. So he, at the end of the day, is going to come out on top. He's not threatened by Harkonnen. He's got their number. The other houses are not going to line up behind House Harkonnen. They don't want to join with House Harkonnen. So there's not a threat there. And what's Harkonnen going to do? He's going to say no. He's going to say no to an opportunity to destroy his bitter, hated rival, Duke Atreides? No. Baron Harkonnen says, absolutely, yes, where do I sign? All in. And it's over for House Atreides pretty quickly. Pretty Shortly after it's begun, it's over. Now, part of what's in the mix, by the way, is that House Atreides has exceptional fighters. And in fact, the method of training these fighters is being hailed throughout the galaxy. And the rumor is House Atreides soldiers may be even a match for the emperors. Feared, hated, loathed Sardaukar, warrior fanatics. And while they put up a good fight, the deck is stacked against them. They're betrayed and they don't end up winning. They can't win. Overwhelmed, caught by surprise. It's treachery. It's trickery. All warfare is deception, as Sun Tzu says. And they're cut down. But here is the interesting twist. There is this people who inhabit Arrakis, Dune. And Harkonnens have had a dickens of a time with these people known as the Fremen for ever. They would love to eradicate them, but they can't quite. So they hunt them when they can. They kill them for sport, kill them for the fun of it, harass them, try to find where their bases are, their homes. Can't quite do it. So it's this this constant struggle on the planet Arrakis. Come to find out, Duke Atreides' purpose for accepting, and probably knew that this was a trap from the get-go, from the beginning, his purpose for accepting this mission to take control of planet Arrakis, even though he knew it was a trap, his design is to, instead of trying to destroy the Fremen, instead of trying to exterminate them, he's going to befriend them. He's going to enlist them because the well-kept secret is that these Fremen are actually exceptional warriors and they have lived on a much harder to survive planet than the Sardaukar are bred and trained on. Arrakis is extremely inhospitable. It's a desert planet. You got to wear special suits in order to stay hydrated. There's not very much water at all. There are dangerous giant worms who, as soon as they sense a vibration on the sand dunes, will come across under the sand and they'll come up and they'll eat whoever it is or whatever it is that they find on their sand dunes. And the Fremen know how to survive 
the sandworms. They've been surviving them for a long, long time. They know how to survive the lack of water problem. They've been doing it for a long time. And they're just absolutely beasts when it comes to enduring, overcoming, adapting, getting rid of anything that would slow them down, hold them back, what have you. And it turns out that House Atreides is not entirely wiped out. Duke Leto Atreides is betrayed, captured, dies. But his concubine, Lady Jessica, his son, more importantly, or as importantly, Paul Atreides, make it out. They're going to be dropped in the desert because there was a promise given to the Bene Gesserit that they would not be harmed. Lady Jessica was a Bene Gesserit. Her son and her are both under the protection of the Bene Gesserit. So the Harkonnens are not allowed to harm either Lady Jessica or her son. They're not allowed to kill them. But they come up with a workaround. We're going to drop Lady Jessica and Paul in the desert. And the desert will clean them out. The desert will do the work for us. Only there's something special about Paul in that he has been studying and he has some kind of odd psychic ability where he's able to have dreams about the future. And he's got something unusual about him, something exceptional about him, which the Fremen believe might mean he's their Messiah, their promised Messiah that they've been expecting for hundreds of years. So come to find out, he is able to get in with the Fremen. They want to kill Paul and Lady Jessica. They want, and this is just kind of a example for you of how brutal the Fremen are, how brutal Arrakis is. They think, hey, you know what? You guys aren't going to survive. You're not from here. Might as well do you a favor and put you out of your misery. And also, we're not going to let any water, any water, any moisture go to waste. So we will kill you, put you out of your misery, and we will harvest your water. That's what they do. If somebody dies, they harvest the water from that person, and they don't let it go to waste, which is creepy and brutal. So they're going to do that with Paul and Lady Jessica, but Paul ends up winning a duel. Lady Jessica and Paul are not quite so weak and soft and vulnerable as the Fremen think. They're actually highly trained in the martial arts. They can defend themselves. And so the Fremen take them in. And that's how part one of this most recent adaptation of the book ends. They've been taken in. Part two, no doubt, will pick up with Paul developing the trust of the Fremen. But a couple of interesting things here. For one, you have an exploration, as we were talking about at the top of this episode, an exploration of the problem of primitive emotions. So Vyth concludes his piece for Table Talk magazine with a quote from his 1993 book, 
where he says, the 20th century persists in its obsession with primitive emotions, irrational subjectivity, moral revolt, anti-transcendence, and the triumph of the will. So you have here in the story of Dune an exploration of all these things. Primitive emotions. You have to conquer your fear. One of the most famous lines from Dune is, fear is the mind killer. You start being afraid and you freak out and you lose your ability to think through what it is that is going on right now. You allow yourself to freak out and be afraid and you're going to die. You're no longer functional. You're no longer you no longer combat effective. You're no longer here with us if you give in to your fear. So you're going to have to master your fear and conquer it and rule over it, or it's going to rule over you. You also have irrational subjectivity being confronted here, being put on display. You also have moral revolt. You have people who are doing very wicked, evil, awful things. Almost at a certain point, just because they're immoral. House Harkonnen are just going to be as revolting as possible as part of how they intimidate their enemies. We're just going to let you guys know on the front end, we don't care about morality. We don't care about what's right or wrong. We are just out for ourselves. So we have no boundaries. We have no limitations on what we're willing to do. You should know that before you get into a scrap with us. Anti-transcendence. So this idea of Paul Atreides being potentially the Messiah for the Fremen, what you know as the reader, what Lady Jessica has some idea of as a former Bene Gesserit, which are kind of this, this guild of women who are almost like witches or Jedi who are the power behind the scenes. They really are the ones running everything behind the scenes. They're not the figurehead. They are the power behind the throne. And they are in every house, on every planet, a secret order. They have special psychic abilities. They're able to speak in what's called the voice. And they master this ability. It's almost like a Jedi mind trick, very much like a Jedi mind trick. These are not the droids you're looking for kind of a thing where those who are weak of will can be commanded. It's like they can basically do mind control on those people by speaking a command in just the right tone to where the person they're giving the command to is powerless to resist them. They must do what they're told. But... The backstory is that the Bene Gesserit have sown the seeds of the Fremen perceiving Paul Atreides as the Messiah. The Bene Gesserit were at work on Arrakis hundreds of years before Paul Atreides is even born, letting these people believe that a Messiah would come who would deliver them from bondage, kind of like Moses and the children of Egypt, very much like. Moses and the children of Egypt. A Messiah is coming who's going to deliver you out of your hard bondage into the promised land. But you knowing that, here's the kicker. (laughs) You knowing that the Bene Gesserit have been at work sowing these seeds hundreds of years before, you must conclude that it's a lie in some sense. This is made up. This is not... Real. This was 
a power play on the part of the Bene Gesserit. And they're using religion and they're using philosophy and they're using very subtle arts and the long game and intrigue in much the same way for the same reason that the emperor is using brute force, his sardaukar, terror, in much the same way that the Harkonnens are using an amorality. So you have anti-transcendence kind of baked into the question of what's going on here. Yes, there's a supernatural element, but maybe that's just what happens. You know, maybe that's actually a kind of materialism that you take this spice, the spice activates something that was just in your brain anyways, and things that we didn't think were possible are possible, but it's all materialistic. It's all explainable by chemistry, biology, physics. It's all sciencey. Lastly, from Gene Veith's article here, the 20th century, he says, I would say also now the 21st century, persists in its obsession with primitive emotions, irrational subjectivity, moral revolt, anti-transcendence, and the triumph of the will. And this last piece really is something that the director of Dune, who did, a, again, a phenomenal job from an artistic standpoint, from creating a faithful adaptation of the book standpoint, Denis uh, Villeneuve, I think is how you say his name, Villeneuve. I could be saying that wrong. Uh, he says in one interview that I heard some snippets of about Dune that this is really a story about the triumph of the human will. That's what Dune is about. And that's why there are no robots. It's not, first and foremost, a story of technology. You know, it's not quite like Star Trek, where people are still these fragile people and everything is uh, you know, warp speed and replicators and holodecks and phasers, tricorders. This isn't Star Wars, where you've got hyperspace and... Again, lasers. This is a little bit different. The technology actually is in a lot of ways very old school, very primitive in Dune. And they explain this because everybody who is worried about getting in a scrap has a personal shield. And this personal shield can be activated with a touch of the button. And each person has this personal shield that has particular settings that as soon as they push that button, it just conforms around their entire body. And if somebody were to shoot a laser at them, the shield would absorb it. And so people have gotten away from lasers and they prefer swords. So you actually have kind of a throwback, a more ancient or even medieval type of aesthetic in many cases. Things are very minimalistic. Lots of Storytelling is done with space, open space, hard lines, edges, colors, light. Less color than light, but less technology than personality. This is a story 
of the human will. And insofar as what Weith is talking about might cause us to wonder, is our present day disproportionately obsessed with triumph of the will compared with previous centuries, previous millennia of human civilization? Are we more preoccupied with triumph of the will? And why so, if so? It's interesting to think about with regards to the story of Dune. Does it matter that the emperor is ruling the known universe through sheer terror, brute force, intimidation? Does it matter that the Harkonnens are dishonest and deceptive and trick, tricky, treacherous, uh, amoral, evil? Does it matter? Does it matter who runs Arrakis? Well, I would say I'm very curious what Frank Herbert's own personal political views were. I don't know a lot about them, but I, I feel as though theologically he was not a, a believer in God. I think he was agnostic probably at best, just the way that the story of Dune is organized and laid out and told. But I sense and I suspect that He's a fish in water who doesn't realize the extent to which he's wet when he creates this universe in which the story is told. He is saying in story form, in narrative form, what Michel Foucault says, that truth claims are a will to power. But in, in another sense, he's exploring and he's questioning, is that true? I mean, how can it be that House Atreides is going to triumph by doing things the right way, by treating people with respect and dignity as opposed to terrorizing them? How can it be that they are actually going to end up being the most powerful force in the universe unless there is some transcendent reason for why that would work better? There has to be a transcendent truth here and not just irrational subjectivity. Nothing is anything. Anything can be anything. To eliminate those restraints, and here Weith is talking about the objective restraints of law, reason, and conscience. To eliminate those restraints is to unleash hell on earth. That's where we find ourselves. You know, the idea that the Nazis would interrogate brutally anybody who was found to be a dissident, not because they were trying to persuade, but because they were trying to crush a competing will. It should inform our perspective on cancel culture. That should inform our perspective on the social credit system which, call it whatever you will, looks an awful lot increasingly like what China has officially rolled out under its communistic regime. You can't travel, you can't communicate, you can't get a job, you can't get a loan, you can't function in society unless you are a good citizen in the party's estimation. And it falls to your neighbors and your friends and your family and your coworkers to turn you in 
See, this is part of the pernicious trap that we're going to enlist the people around you in our tyrannical scheme. It's like initiating somebody into a gang. You're going to have to kill somebody to prove that you are willing to take a human life if the gang tells you to. It doesn't matter what this person has done. It doesn't matter if they've done anything to deserve it. As Weith says elsewhere in the article, the Nazis had this combination of Darwinism and a de-Judaized Christianity and a neo-paganism and a race theory that, quote, led to the notion that there is life unworthy of life in the words of a Nazi propaganda movie that should simply be extinguished. And I quote, life unworthy of life that should simply be extinguished. If you check out Edwin Black's book, you can get more of an in-depth history on eugenics. I would encourage you to. It's disturbing, but it needs to be known. If you check out On Killing by Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, you'll find that one of the ways you prepare yourself to destroy somebody else is to dehumanize them. Increase psychological distance. Well, that's exactly what our mass media has been doing with regards to conservatives and Republicans and literally anybody who opposes the collective will. If you disagree on whether vaccines should be mandated for children, you're not just somebody who disagrees. You're an enemy. You have revealed that you have a contrary will to that of the fascisti, that of the collective. And so now the collective needs to seek and destroy you. It would be a, a grave mistake for us to see this as only a Democrat problem. This is also a Republican problem if we don't properly grasp how God's word informs liberty. Liberty is not a godless concept. Liberty is a Christian concept. Now, so also, you've got to be a slave either to Christ or to unrighteousness, either to righteousness or unrighteousness. But ironically, counterintuitively, the purpose of being a slave to Christ is to be free indeed. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Read through the New Testament epistles. You can't miss that while there is a rigid conformity on certain points, particularly with regards to who is God, what is the gospel, what is the good news of Jesus Christ, there's also a stubborn insistence on Christian liberty. Meat offered to idols. One person says, I can eat meat that was dedicated to a pagan god by the butcher, by the vendor in the marketplace. That doesn't mean that I'm participating in that pagan ritual. It's just meat, and I give thanks to God for it. Another Christian brother says, I absolutely cannot have this meat offered to idols. It is idolatry if I do, because I used to participate in these pagan rituals, and I can't in good conscience any longer. Paul says, you should be persuaded in your own mind, one way or the other, but it's fine either way. 
don't violate your conscience. Also, don't destroy your brother for having a difference of conscience on this matter. And so also we should extrapolate from that, that we ought to be, we must be respectful of disagreements. So long as they don't rise to the level of disobeying God in what he has explicitly commanded. If it's debatable whether this would disobey a principle in God's word, well then, yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah, let's think about it. Let's be intentional about it. But at the end of the day, we might disagree and we shouldn't use our freedom to destroy one another, Paul says. But so also, he doesn't say we shouldn't have any freedom. Neither does Christ. That's not an Old Testament idea. It's not a New Testament idea. The counterintuitive is that we are actually the most free when we believe what it is that God has said about himself, about his son, about his reasons for creating, about the way he created, about how he rules and reigns, about what his promises are and that he is faithful to keep them, his commands to us, not that we're righteous by following them, but that we follow them because we are declared righteous, we are considered and esteemed righteous if we are in Christ. Conservatism is just a little behind the times without Christ. Jordan Peterson is not a conservative. He's a 1930s liberal. He's just gone backwards on the number line, but he's headed to the same place unless there is an about face. It's liberal Christianity. So in a sense, you get a time capsule. And I love Jordan Peterson in so much of what it is that he's saying and he's doing because 1930s liberalism, it's not quite as scary. And I I pray for Jordan Peterson that he gets there. But in the meantime, he's not a conservative. He has a form of godliness, but he denies its power. So also this movie Dune, depending on where they go with it, it could very easily be used to reinforce this very fascistic philosophy. And very quickly, you can have House Harkonnen turned into a caricature of oil and gas companies. Duke Atreides is turned into a kind of environmentalist savior, a kind of Al Gore, not quite, but Al Gore wishes. So we have to be students of God's word first and foremost. That's what I'm getting at. Dune might be a very interesting story, very, very skillfully told story. And it is. It's among my favorite, actually. I would I would say Dune, I prefer Dune, not that I've read it more or watched it more. They just came out with the movie. I don't usually read books more than once. But I would prefer the story of Dune over Star Wars for its believability, for its gravitas. Herbert, according to Wikipedia, was a strong critic of the Soviet Union. He was a distant relative of the Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy, whom he referred to as Cousin Joe. However, he was appalled to learn of McCarthy's blacklisting of suspected communists from working in certain careers and believed that he was endangering essential freedoms of citizens of the United States. Herbert believed that governments lie to protect themselves and that following the Watergate scandal, President Richard Nixon had unwittingly taught an important lesson in not trusting government. Herbert also opposed American involvement in the war in Vietnam. In Chapter House Dune, he wrote, quote, All governments suffer a recurring problem. Power attracts pathological personalities. It is not that power corrupts, 
but that it is magnetic to the corruptible. Such people have a tendency to become drunk on violence, a condition to which they are quickly addicted. End quote. That's some really good stuff. That's really profound. Also, we need to be careful that we keep God's word as our test and our rubric. Whatever it is that we're dealing with in fiction or nonfiction in our present day, let God's word be true and every man a liar. That's the safeguard against truth claims being an arbitrary will to power. If we're truly submitting ourselves to God's word, what does he say? He sets the standard. He says what's right and wrong, not us. It's not anything goes. And also there's a great safety in that, in that God still holds all the cards at the end of the day. He still is the trump card, regardless what the emperor is doing, regardless what House Harkonnen is doing, regardless of whether we just walked into a trap naively, God wins in the end, and he's faithful. I'm going to leave it there, though. i got to run. Today is my last day at Sterling Energy. I'm going in, even though I've transitioned everything. I thought I would be working through the end of this week, but someone in particular threw a fit and didn't want me to finish out two weeks getting everything transitioned over smoothly. So I worked last week, got things cleaned up to the greatest extent I could, got my personal effects brought home, anything that was works taken back. Today I go through the formality of checking everything in. Is it all accounted for? Yes, it is. Handshake, hopefully, and I'm on my way again. So check out the movie Dune. Read the book. Let God's word be your test. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Don't walk into traps willy-nilly or frivolously, but trust the good Lord. The good Lord knows he's faithful. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.